Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. I know it's not Monday, but it doesn't have to be because today's episode is on Andy Murray, the best show in all of men's tennis since the U.S. Open, in my opinion, playing epic match after epic match, playing week after week, fighting his face off and trying to get back to where he once was with a metal hip, finally building that consistency, healthy, playing every week. That's the most important thing. And it's been a lot of fun to watch. And he's saying things like this. He said after his loss to Alcaraz in Vienna, it will happen. I'm not going to keep losing in the second or third round. I will get better. I will improve. And I will break through in one week, in two weeks, or in a few months. It will happen. I obviously would just like it to be happening quicker. Whoa. Confident Andy Murray. Talented, former number one, three-time world champion Andy Murray. Major champion. I don't know what sport I'm going with there. Three-time major champion speaking confidently that his breakthrough is coming. So today, I want to talk about what needs to be done for that breakthrough to happen, what that breakthrough will probably look like, what will change when that breakthrough happens, what are some of the decisions he's faced with, talk through that, and I will bring on Amy Lundy onto the show, my co-host on three, uh, freelance tennis writer, 538.com, ESPN, among others. I will bring her on to the show to discuss some of these things. But the two main things I want to discuss um, are his equipment, the racket he's using, and his decision-making in big moments before I bring on Amy. There have been other things that have been discussed here, and just to kind of set the scene here, uh, Andy Murray has been 500 in 2021 at tour level. Um, he has had um, he has had 13 wins and 13 losses. Now, his ranking right now, 144 in the world, has not given him a lot of luck with the draws. He could have been more lucky. You know, it's not, he's been unlucky even for someone who's 144. Now, on the other end of the spectrum here, he's getting wild cards every week. So you could call him unlucky. He is. Does he deserve the wild cards? Yes, but you can only be so unlucky getting a wild card every week. It is what it is, basically. Uh, if you dig deeper into how good Andy Murray has been, uh, there's really been kind of a line of demarcation because uh, playing players outside of the top 20, Murray's 12 and 4. It's a really good record outside of the top 20. That is not bad at all. Uh, but inside the top 20, he is 1 and 9. He just beat Hubert Hercoc in Vienna last week. He was 0 and 9 against top 20 players before then. And that has been the issue. And that issue to me has been largely because of his decision-making in big spots. A lot of these matches have been close. He goes five sets with Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open. Um, he has played a lot of tie breaks, and he has done not well at all in them. Uh, a 3-8 and eight record in tie breaks this season. 1-5 against top 20 players in that, in that little uh, sample size that we took. The most recent example is, of course, in his last match against Dominic Cope for first round in Paris— where he lost seven match points. And what I want to show you guys real quick here is just kind of what I've been seeing out of Andy Murray in the big points, which is decision-making that is uncharacteristic from him. 
and below what his usual level is because Murray's mind is like a supercomputer. He's got a fantastic, fantastic tennis mind and really good feel on the court. And I think his shot selection ordinarily is elite, as good as anyone in the world. And I just think that in the big moments here, it's dwindling. So let me go through uh, six of these match points because on six of these match points, really five of them, I think he made questionable decisions. And this is not something I just saw in this match. This is something that I've been seeing repeatedly out at, at of Andy Murray. So let me cover that. And then I want to get to his equipment, his racket. Um, and again, I'm going through the things that I think need to change for Murray for him to take the next step. So we're going to look at this first match point here. It is 1540 at 4-5 on Kupfer's serve. So double break point here, double match point. And Kupfer approaches the Murray backhand. And Murray hits a slice lob on, on this shot. Kupfer's between the service line and the baseline here. And Murray's throwing up a slice lob. It would be one thing if he was on the full stretch and he didn't have any options here, but just to, just to try to put the ball in the air. But he's there in some time. If you're going to go to the slice here, hit it low. Kupfer's nowhere near the net. Get it low and and make Kupfer hit a low volley. A slice lob makes very little sense here, and Kupfer uh, puts away the overhead. On the next set point, Murray has a backhand to look at, and he pulled Kupfer off the court on the previous shot. What Murray's going to do here is change to continental grip again, and hit a drop shot down the line. Kupfer is not even recovered to the middle of the court here. So if you're going to hit a drop shot, I find that to be kind of questionable. I think he could have driven a backhand cross court and been in a great position in this rally. But if you're going to hit a drop shot, don't hit it down the line. Kupfer is not even to the middle yet. You can make him run a much further distance if you hit it cross court. Well, Kupfer gets to this drop shot and wins the point. Let's go to the next one, and Murray yells at himself and points cross-court and says, why the heck didn't I just hit the ball cross-court instead of down the line? So Kupfer holds serve, and now we have to go to the tie break. So now in the tie break, it is Murray with six points, Kupfer with four, Kupfer on serve, and Murray goes to the slice backhand once again and hits this one down the line and misses wide. This isn't an awful decision. He's just trying to slice this ball down the line. I guess there's nothing really wrong with that. But to miss it wide is a little bit strange. You know, this is just a pattern-changing ball. He, You're not really going to do anything with the width here of the shot. It's not like he's going for any sort of particular angle or there's really no reason to be. So to miss it wide is just a little bit unnecessary and pretty strange. And I can't help but notice, but this is the third match point in a row where Murray is using a continental grip on his backhand, which is supposed to be his bread and butter, his very best shot, and he's kind of messing up with it. And I think he's been tentative on his backhand in big spots. And his backhand's looking great, by the way, when he's not under pressure. Okay, we continue here. Um, another set point, and this one's pretty strange. 6-5 on the very next point, and this is an epic rally, by the way, where Murray could have won it, and it's an excellent effort effort by Kupfer, no doubt about it. But Murray has a backhand overhead, and instead of trying to hit a good backhand overhead or a damaging backhand overhead, I swear to God, Murray doesn't try to hit a good one here. He just 
bunts it back down the middle of the court and retreats to the baseline. This is the very next shot. Again, Murray literally just floated it back through the middle of the court and retreated to the baseline, and Kupfer hits as good as a backhand winner on this very next shot. Murray on this backhand overhead, you're in a, a position here where you need to try to do something. He literally aims for the middle of the court and just taps it back and goes back to the baseline. That's a strange play. You rarely see that play, and it does not work. Uh, now we fast forward to 7-6 in the tiebreak. Murray with another match point. And again, he goes to the backhand drop shot. There is nothing awful about this drop shot. He's not in a terrible position, but it's pretty neutral. He's certainly not in an advantageous position to hit a drop shot. His feet are both behind the baseline. Kupfer's court positioning, eh, he's about three, four feet behind the baseline. Not awful. So it's kind of a neutral backhand, and Murray, it's kind of a bailout. Do I think it's terrible? No. But ultimately, Kupfer gets two hands on this backhand and hits it for a winner. So again, Murray goes to continental grip on the backhand side, hits another drop shot, and it burns him again. You know, it's just, it's un-Murray-like. It's un-Murray-like to continue to not hit your backhand and to try to do funky things with it and for it to continuously not work. Just at a certain point, just drive the backhand. Um, and he's not doing it in ways, I don't want to penalize him for hitting slice or hitting drop shots because that's fine, but the situations just don't really call for it. Um, there was one set point in here that I'm not showing screenshots of where Murray just misses a cross-court drive backhand, which was just a normal backhand. There was no bad decision here, and he just missed it. Uh, now, on the final set point, uh, Murray has a forehand, very tentative with this cross-court forehand, and Kupfer steps in and hits this down the line as good as a winner. Um, no bad decision there, but... I figured I'd show you the last set point. But time after time after time, it's just Murray's doing weird things in these big moments, in these big spots. He's making strange decisions. I just don't think his mind is right at the moment. I don't think he's confident. I don't think he's thinking clearly. I don't think the decision-making has been good on the big points. And as a result, he's right there with top players. He's right there, and he's just falling short. You know, that 0-9 against top 20 players, he's playing a lot of close matches. He's finding himself, himself in a lot of pressure situations because he's playing well enough to get into those positions. And he's just falling short. And I think it's just there's something going on mentally right now. And I think there's a good chance that he just needs some time away and that that scar tissue is just built up. First, it comes from lack of match play. And then I think it came from lack of match play turning into a lot of overthinking from the scar tissue of failing to come through these tight matches over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, maybe the offseason will cure this and he just needs a break, but I think that is happening. That is what is going on here. Now, another thing that people have pointed out with Murray, and I think it is correct. I think I've covered it as well. Uh, Matthew Willis did a good piece on it recently, is Murray's level of aggression. The reality is that Andy Murray has declined in speed. 34 years old, hip resurfacing surgery. He's declined in speed. Now, his play style and his adaptation 
has not quite matched the decline in his athletic ability. So we've seen Nadal do this. We've seen Federer do this. Um, Their movement, perhaps their endurance, has declined. So they've changed the way that they play. Murray's movement, his endurance, it's declined. He hasn't really changed the way he plays. Jim Courier on Tennis Channel mentioned that Andy might be thinking about tinkering with his equipment, looking towards maybe a heavier frame, maybe a longer frame. And I found that very interesting. It caused me to dig about what Andy Murray uses. And I found a source on the internet that said, this is what Andy Murray's playing with. And I didn't quite trust it. I wanted to make sure it was true. So I confirmed it with one of Andy's coaches who was nice enough to confirm for me all of the equipment and the setup that he is using. So here's what he's using. Andy is using a head Pro Tour 630. That is not the racket that he promotes. That's not the racket that it looks like he's using, that orange head. Um, that That is actually not what Andy is playing with. He's playing with a head Pro Tour 630. It's not a racket you can buy. His tension is 56 pounds. Um, and I was looking at all of the string tensions that was made public for Vienna, and Andy's tension was the second highest in the entire field. Only Fabio Fanini, who has racket speed that far surpasses Andy's, only Fabio Fanini strings his racket tighter than Andy. This racket has a swing weight of 379. It's very heavy, very, very heavy racket. Most rackets are between 340 and 360. And the flexibility of the racket, the stiffness is 58. 58, extremely flexible. Now, flexible rackets favor control over power. That is kind of a common misconception. Some people think there's some sort of slingshot effect um, because the ball stays on the string bed longer when the racket is more flexible. Now, that is true. But that is for control. That does not improve the power. A more powerful racket is actually a stiffer racket. There's a misconception there sometimes. So Andy is stringing his racket incredibly tight. It's an incredibly flexible racket, and it's incredibly heavy. Now, the weight of the racket, that is something that I am not really, uh, I, I don't feel strongly about. Heavier, lighter, I don't feel strongly about that. But the other stuff I kind of do. Um, I wonder if Andy is going to really develop more pop on his on his second serve, on his forehand. You know, things that have things that he has been kind of grappling with his entire career. Maybe he needs to stop using the racket that he's used his entire career. I just felt that this was important to throw out there. You know, I'm not Andy, so, you know, I can't say that he should be using something else or uh, a setup that he's won three major titles with uh, and, you know, reached world number one with and has had an illustrious career with. It's hard to say that. But if adjustments are going to be made here, if adaptations are going to be made here, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it's with the equipment. And I just thought it was important for someone to point out the fact that he's using a very old racket, stringing it incredibly tight, incredibly flexible, 98-inch head size. I mean, this is not this is not a big basher's racket. This is a very control-oriented setup. So if we're going to get offensive Murray, maybe we got to get more offensive racket. I don't know. Um... It's something to monitor. It's something to monitor. Courier threw it out there. That's what put it on my radar. I did a little extra digging. What does Murray use? Sure enough, this is a very control-oriented setup that Andy Murray uses. And I, quite frankly, I think his game is going to need less control and more power. Now, that's just me. I, I think he needs to shorten points. He needs this to get a little bit less physical. He needs to be more opportune. He needs to lean on his defense less. I think all those things need to happen. Here's the counterpoint before I get to Amy Lundy. The counterpoint is that Andy's getting better and better. His movement is getting better. He's getting quicker. He looks pretty quick right now. And he looks strong. He looks fit. Looks fast. He's staying healthy. Maybe he just needs to stay the course. And maybe it is the mental stuff that just needs sorting out. It will with match play, and he'll get there. But look, is he ever going to be able to put himself through the physical ringer that he did in 15, in 16? Is he ever going to be able to defend like that? I think absolutely not. So if he wants to give himself a chance to get back into the top 10, I really do think he's going to have to get more offensive. And the decision-making, I think that'll sort itself out. I wanted to point that out because I think it's held him back here. But in terms of him getting more aggressive to adapt like Federer has, like Nadal has with decline movement, Djokovic hasn't had to really. And even Djokovic, I could argue, has adapted his plus one play, has been more aggressive on the second serve. But I think Federer and, and Nadal are, are better blueprints because their movement has declined more. If Murray's going to do that, um, if Murray's going to get back into the top 10, I think he needs to do that too. I do. He's had a great 2021. He's got one more event left. Um, Stockholm. And we'll see how he does there. We'll continue to monitor it. But these are my overarching thoughts right now on Andy Murray. And uh, plenty more thoughts come from the wonderful Amy Lundy, my co-host on 3, a tennis show. Uh, which is available on all podcast platforms and YouTube. Also does great freelance tennis data journalism. Here's Amy. Thanks for being on again. Um, I decided to do a whole show on Andy Murray because to me, since the U.S. Open, he's been the most interesting show in, in town. He is the most interesting player to follow for me after the U.S. Open. And I have a feeling you agree with me. Oh, did you see my tweet that I've been obsessively watching every single match he's played since the U.S. Open, including that U.S. Open match? Yeah, I can't get enough of it because it's like you said, Gil, it's layered. It's There's so many storylines within the larger picture of Andy Murray and who he is. Um, he's a three-time Grand Slam winner, which is, you know, kind of rare these days and outside of the big three. And he is such a character and is not afraid to speak his mind. He's good on social media. He's a member of Tennis Twitter. He's one of us. So, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> what, what's not to love? And, and we need good stuff this time of year after all the slams are over. A hundred percent. 
Um, and I think everyone's just been locked in on him. I mean, the whole thing of coming back from the hip surgery and you take one of a player who's reached number one in the world and you knock him all the way down to the lowest possible point to a point where, you know, he can't even walk uh, and he doesn't think he'll ever play again. And to see, okay, how far can he get? You know, how, you know, where, what heights can he reach in this second phase is always going to be just so interesting to watch. And then you have all of the things that are unique about Andy Murray and all the reasons why we, we like to watch him under any circumstance. But Amy, how good, and I know you have some numbers here, how good has he been in 2021? How, you know, where do you think he's at in the landscape of, of men's tennis here? Well, it's interesting um, because I think the way that he's playing and his level of play and his quality of play has certainly it hasn't caught up to his ranking right now, which is 144 in the world, unbelievably. Um, but it also hasn't caught up to public perception. And I mean, if you know anything about me, Jim Courier is my favorite analyst. I pretty much live and breathe everything the guy says. He really does his homework. Plus, he me was too. a great, great champion. And even Jim Courier on the broadcast the other night said something about Andy Murray. Ah, he's not a top 10 anymore. And, and he was sort of downplaying like how well Andy Murray has been playing. And I thought, wow, Jim doesn't even realize yet the level that this guy is playing because he's nowhere near 144 in the world. Um, so do you want me to get into that or do you want to well, chat uh, some more? We get into it whenever, whenever you'd like is fine okay. by me, but I, I think one of the things that's been apparent are his draws. And you look at the players who he's lost to since since Queens Club. Matteo Berrettini was playing better than anyone else on grass. Denis Shapovalov, I mean, was just bringing an incredible level at Wimbledon. Hercotch in Cincinnati. Tiafo in Winston-Salem. Uh, Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open. He had a bad one at the challenger level against Safilin. Uh, Hercotch in Mets. Rude in San Diego, Zverev at Indian Wells, Schwartzman in Antwerp, Alcaraz in Vienna, uh, and then uh, Kopfer in Paris, where I think he was pretty gassed, and um, it, you tweeted that out as well. Top 20 guys, really not losing to anyone, and, and some of those guys, let me clarify, are not top 20, but I'd say Alcaraz playing at a top 20 level right now, uh, just watched him absolutely collapse. Um, against Gastone, but besides that, and then, you know, Tiafo has also been, I don't know where he is in the race, but I think somewhere around 25 ish in the race. So uh, the draws have been tough is really all I'm trying to say here. Tiafo is ranked 41 in the world right now, but in um, the race, let's see. Oh, in the race, in the race. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know where he is in the race. I didn't really, I wasn't looking at race. I was looking at um, just ranking because the ranking is sort of a chicken and egg scenario, right? Like he, Andy needs to get his ranking up so that he won't be drawing top 20 opponents in the first and second round so that he can advance and get his ranking up. Right, Gil? I mean, right. that's probably why he's playing his butt off, his Scottish butt off right now, because he's just trying to get his ranking up because uh, otherwise you know, what's the purpose of playing it when he plays, he's in the draw for Stockholm next week, it will be his 
eighth tournament, um, including U.S. Open. So since August, his eighth. I mean, it's just a massive workload right now. So I, I'm thinking that, well, of course, he loves tennis. That's the main reason he's <laughs> probably playing. But also just to try to get that ranking up a little bit. Um, and and so just if, if I, I was trying to think, like, what is Andy Murray's real ranking right now? That, that's what I really wanted to know. Like, what's his level-ish? And of course, there's no scientific way to know that, but you mentioned the people that he's beaten. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to look at the top five ranked players that he's beaten um, and the bottom five ranked that he's lost to since the US Open, and I'm including the US Open match because that was, he played one match against Tsitsipas. It was a five match thriller and he lost barely. Um, but I think after that match, he said, you know, this, if I can hang in there with Tsitsipas, then I'm, I'm getting my confidence that my tennis is getting back to a level where I want it. So to find out like where he's at right now, Andy Murray, uh, he had he has beaten uh, Hercotch, who's ranked ten. He's beaten Alcaraz, who's ranked thirty-five. Tiafo, who's ranked forty-one. Manorino, who's ranked fifty-nine, and Umber, who's ranked twenty-nine. I think, um, if I wrote that down right. So, it just unscientific way, totally unscientific. Um, if you average those rankings, it's an average of about 35. So he's beaten an average of, of ranking about 35. Well, those are the highs, but then you also have to look at the lows, right? So he's lost to Kepfer, Alcaraz, um, the guy in the challenger who you mentioned. Safulin. Yeah, Safulin, uh, Schwartzman, and Hercotch. Believe it or not, Hercotch at 10, that was also in his worst losses. You average that, and it's an average ranking of about 57. So Andy Murray right now, despite being 144 in the world, is somewhere between-ish 57 and 35 in the world. And if you think about it, that's probably about right. That sounds that sounds about right to me. Now he's six and ten, and this is in 2021. And I think another qualifier is he's got he's gotten better as 2021 has gone on. Um, and especially I think post Wimbledon, he's been a little bit better, and especially starting at the US Open against Tsitsipas. But against top 50, he's six and ten. And against players outside the top 50, he's 12 and five. So it, that puts him, in my opinion, it, it means that you know you do have that kind of line being drawn around the 40 to 30 range. So I, I, I also think that that sounds right. Um, there are a lot of decisions that he's faced with now as he goes into 2022. And while we're talking about his ranking and his scheduling, I, I think a natural place to go is, first of all, he continues to rely on wild cards. And there's a question of how long that can last, how sustainable that is. And then there's a question of, well, maybe if he's going to be continuously getting these difficult draws by nature of the fact that he's not seated, um, maybe he should play some challengers and and hope not to lose to, to Roman Safulin uh, early on and just to build some momentum to go to some events and to not lose at them, to go all the way, 
to win five matches. Um, you know, maybe this is something that he should think about to just go down to that level because that's where his ranking's at right now. And maybe that'll be what he needs to build the, the confidence. I think maybe that might have been the plan. Um, maybe over the summer he was thinking about doing that. And what happened was, I don't know if it's because of COVID or some of these guys like Hercatch were trying to make the, the race. Um, the fields for these end of the year events, the draws have been stunningly good. San Diego, is it because everybody's buddies with Danny Valverdu? Who knows? Um, but Vienna, did you see the qualifying for Vienna, Gil? I mean, the level there. So I, I don't know why the it's been so good. I think under ordinary circumstances, Andy could have entered one of these tournaments like the European Open or something and won the thing. But um, he's having to play himself into form right now. And my big thing with him, which we can discuss, is I think, I mean, it's my opinion. What do I know? But I'm hoping and praying that he does not overdo it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand the the fatigue concern. The counter to that, and the reason why I don't have a major issue with the fact that he's playing every week is because he has not won back-to-back -back matches at the majority of these events. So to me, he's he's gotten that, you know, he's lost on, you know, either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, at the latest Thursday, and he's had a couple days to recover. I think if he was going deep, then he could have definitely benefited from a week off. You know, my scheduling question for him is more so should he play a challenger or two so he can get that back, that feeling of winning back to back to back to back. But I think the, you know, the, that's also another good question because he did look fatigued um, in his match against, against Kopfer. Yeah. And it's not just physical fatigue. Um, being away from the kids is really hard. He's got four mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I know Kim's there, she's holding down the fort and everything, but it really takes a toll on you um, mentally, which can also creep into the physical, believe it or not, because you can maybe not sleep as well. And, you know, he, he did an interview and he said that his three-year-old wouldn't talk to him on FaceTime because she was mad that he was gone. And it, that was a while ago, but you know, these sorts of things can, can play a role and um, it, it all feeds, it's all connected and it all feeds into itself because he plays these marathon matches against Tiafo. He played the longest match on the ATP tour this year. Um, why? Well, it's because his first serve isn't perhaps as effective as it should be. Why? Because he has no legs, because he's tired, because he's playing so much. It, it just, these things can snowball and sort of feed into each other. So um, I noticed in the last match that since I've been watching almost every match that he's played since the U.S. Open, uh, the, the ground strokes just didn't have the pop like he doesn't have a ton of, you know, he's not like a um, sinner or something like that with his ground strokes, but it just, it didn't, like I tuned in and I was like, it, it's, what is it? And the serve, the first serve did not have um, the pop and the numbers bore that out. So um, I really think 
I mean, who am I to say, but I do think he should get home. Yeah, no, I, that, that's fine. I, I think that's it's valid. Uh, but he's got one more. He's going to play St. Yeah. Petersburg. Yeah. Stockholm. Uh, oh, sorry. Stockholm, St. Yeah. Petersburg. That would be uh, going back in time. Um, <laughs> so he has been getting better. He feels like he's getting quicker. I think he's getting quicker. I think the first serve has been good. From a, a game perspective, what have you been most encouraged by watching Murray over this last stretch? The way he's moving. He's yeah. moving like he's not moving like a 34-year-old. He's moving like he always has. Um, I mean, someone, uh, people keep saying, oh my gosh, can you believe he's got a metal hip? Um, I, I Maybe that's a good thing. He's like the bionic man. I mean, it's, or it's like the guys that get the Tommy John surgery in American baseball, that some of them come back and actually have more velocity after they've had the surgery. So I'm really encouraged by the way that he's moving. And, you know, his anticipation is a brain thing. It's, yeah, it's a body thing, but it's really a brain thing. And he's anticipating as well as he ever has. And I, I think he's one of the greatest ever. I've never seen anyone really anticipate much better than Andy Murray. I mean, Federer's great and Djokovic is great as well. Um, but, you know, he he's right up there. I mean, his anticipation is incredible. Uh, and you're right, he has cited that. I agree with you. It's the movement. That's what's encouraging. He looks fit. He looks big. He looks strong. But as you said, he continues to get into these wars. And that's going to be a problem. At a certain point, you know, the, the, especially how extreme it's been, um, because he's always gotten into wars throughout his career. That's fine, but you're going to have to play some quick matches. Um, do you think that part of it is closing because, you know, there have also been instances where he has lost tight matches that he just hasn't seemed to close the door when he's had a chance, like, uh, in his win against Hercotch, he he had a match point in the second, had to win it in three. Uh, this keeps on happening. It seems like something has to change. So I guess the question is, what do you think is the thing that can change that can get Murray out of this cycle of every match being two plus hours, two and a half, three hours? I think... <laughs> I'd really have to look at the stats on it, Gil, um, because if you've been around as long as he has, um, you're going to have matches where you let some match points slip by. So I don't know that this is um, a new phenomenon or if if it's different than... Um, than what other people face. I mean, I, I remember Tennis Sangren played Roger Federer and had uh, like seven match points go by at the Australian Open. These things happen. Um, I do think that his game is more prone to um, the grind, you know, especially sure. the, the scoreboard grind. And um, a first serve, a reliable first serve would really help with that. Um, and, and his first serve, as you said, seems to be on a good trajectory. I mean, I, I looked at the matches that he's played, including the U S open since the U S open, and he's played one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine tiebreakers. That's a lot. Um, it is. and he's, he's played, uh, 16 matches, 41 sets. I mean, good gracious. 
that's that's and and some of those sets you know it's if it's not a tiebreaker it's seven five a lot of the scores in that so he's just played a ton of tennis the last thing uh i want to ask you about is the the on-court demeanor um he's always been emotional animated expressive i feel like that's up a couple notches right now do you think so Oh, or do you think I it's don't kind know. Of, I don't know. Is, is it always? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's funny. I, I did this thing for ESPN.com a few years ago after the Serena Williams incident at the U S open on, um, penalizations and, you know, was it equal men and women? And I had to watch something like 75 matches and, or 78 half men, half women. And I watched many Andy Murray matches and, <laughs> It's the same as it ever was, Gil. I mean, the language is just cover your kids' ears. Um, I, I find that he's exactly the same. In fact, he may have cleaned up some of the um, stuff with the racket. Like, I, I really haven't seen him abuse the racket much. No, me either. O only his coaches. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's good. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just been so many epic wars where you feel like he's going through the ringer um his fans are going through the ringer and it's it's just been week to week entertainment um and i think at at a certain point he's going to want to make this less entertaining and a little bit more straightforward and i think that's when we'll know that he's back at another level because right now he's back to someone who first of all can be healthy and play every week and that's really what's happened at the end of 2021. To me, that's the milestone. That's the marker. He's playing every week. There are not, you know, he does not seem to be um, dealing with injuries while he's playing every week. And that's what's happened. That's the difference right now. And it's great to see that is going to make this offseason for him, I think, a special one because he just proved to himself that he can tour and play an event every week. Yes. So Andy, in your off season, you know, do it just right. Don't overdo it. Don't drag the tires. Don't injure the groin, the quad, the pelvis, all these other things that were outside of the hip. Don't do that in the off season and get ready for the Australian open and be healthy and knock it out. Thanks, Amy. This was great.